Well, I wonder what uh, you thought when, when you saw what the reading was this morning. I'll tell you what I would think if I was in the congregation this morning. I think I would think, first of all, um, does he realize that Christmas is over? Um, it is actually January, and we're quite well into January. It's not even Epiphany, um, unless we want to go on some sort of Eastern Orthodox time, but we're not there. So I think that's the first thing that I would think. And the second thing that I would think is, I know what he's done. He's gone to his filing cabinet, he's had a look through, and he's found one of his Christmas sermons, and he's thinking, right, well, I'll, I'll come and bring that to you this morning. Well, actually, you'd be wrong for once. I've not done that. Um, this passage is a passage that uh, we in, in our church in Port Albert have been thinking about quite a lot over, over the last, not just Christmas, but going on into this new year as well. Um, and we're thinking about it really because of where we are as a church. And as I come to you this morning, I'm trying to think, well, where are you as a church? Um, are you in the same place that we are in terms of thinking through what's happened to us over the last couple of years? And I guess you're not far away from where, where we would be in Bethlehem. First of all, we're in a place of really thanking God thanking him as we look back over two years that he has kept us together as a church, that uh, the Lord has been good to us. Uh, we've been united in many opportunities to show Christian love to one another. And I'm sure that's been the case here as well. Um, we've been able to meet in person uh, in the church for quite a long time. Um, the Lord has been good in that. I know you were online for a very long time, so were we. But even during that time of being online, we were still able to see one another, weren't we? We were still able to have fellowship in a measure with one another. And God has been very good to us in that. And yet we know that so much has been taken away from us. And now, by God's grace, we're looking in forward to a year when we hope that many of those things will be given back to us that we will be able to re-establish a lot of the things that as a church we do. But what is it that's at the very heart of what we do as churches together? What is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian? I want to suggest to you from God's word, and particularly from this passage about the wise men, that right at the heart of everything is worship, isn't it? It's worship. And so as we go on into this year, every one of us and, and us together as churches are going to have to re-establish our patterns of worship, patterns of worship that have been disrupted and rearranged over the last couple of years, and we've learnt to do things in a different way. But it's not a bad thing, is it, to, to start asking a question about worship and why we worship and how we worship what does worship mean? We'd say, well, I'm coming to church today because I'm going to worship God. And I'm coming to church to worship him with other people. But we also know that our whole lives are lives of worship to God. So there's a sense that we come to worship, but we also go out to worship as well. There's individual personal worship, isn't there? And there's this collective worship. So it's a good time as we begin a year that we trust will be a year of change back to some sort of normality 
to say, well, what about our patterns of worship? And what are we really doing when we worship God? Let's ask, what is worship? One of the great books of the Bible for worship is the Psalms, isn't it? We often turn there to help us to worship God, to give us words to say when we come to him. So what is worship? According to the Psalms, worship is praise. That's where it begins, isn't it? Psalm 92 verse 1. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High. Praise is certainly there at the heart of our worship. We're praising God for all that he is, telling him of his greatness, his goodness, his love, and everything else about him. Proclamation is also part of praise. Again, Psalm 92, verse 2, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. Worship is something that goes on all day. Uh, in the morning, we wake up and we say, thank you, Lord, that you're a God of great love. You love me today, you've loved me through the night, and you continue to be a great God of love. And we proclaim God's love, we tell him of his love, and tell one another of his love as well. Then when we get to the end of the day, we proclaim the faithfulness of God. Lord, I thank you that you've kept me through the day. You've been faithful to all of your promises. I thank you that I'm able to trust you. Singing is part of worship. We've sung today. It's been good to be able to do that. I think it was one of the worst things for us as a church was being able to go back to our building because we have a huge building as many of you know massive building we can fit 500 600 people in our building in a, on a good day never done that by the way because there have never been 600 people who wanted to come to church all at one same time but we could fit that many but during this lockdown we've not been able to have that many but when we got back and we were able to have as many as we could it was wonderful to see one another but we couldn't sing. We couldn't sing. And to have that taken away from you for a while was a very hard thing and a really difficult decision for us as, as leaders because we know that the Bible tells us to sing. And yet we weren't able to do that for a, for a while. We've been doing it for a long time now. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, says the Psalms. Part of worship is singing. Thanksgiving is part of worship, isn't it? Thanksgiving. Let us come before him with thanksgiving, Psalm 100. And then giving glory to God. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together, Psalm 34. Rejoicing in the Lord. We rejoice in all that God is. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you righteous, Psalm 32. Serving the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness, Psalm 100. Verse 2. So there's some of the things that worship involves. It involves praise, proclamation, singing, thanksgiving, giving glory to God, rejoicing in the Lord, serving the Lord. In short, what is worship? Worship is responding to God's grace and love in the only way possible when we know who He is and what He's done for us. Worship is a, a response to everything that God is and everything that he has done for us, particularly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can do this individually and we could do it personally and we do it together when we meet for worship. And there's a very close link between those two things, between worshipping God as an individual Christian every day of your life, throughout the week, and then coming together to worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. There's a real close link between the two. I think the person who got it right was, was 
William Cooper in his lovely hymn, Jesus, where'er thy people meet. Now listen to this. Jesus, where'er thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. I think that's important. In other words, he's saying you don't need really a special place to worship God. All you need is God's people coming together. And wherever they come together, there they're worshipping you. It's hallowed ground. Even online, we are still meeting together and it becomes a hallowed ground. It becomes a place where we can worship God together. But listen to the second verse. For thou within no walls confined inhabitest the humble mind. Such ever bring thee where they come and going take thee to their home. I think that is incredibly profound. What it's saying is that you and I this morning left our homes and as we left our homes we rejoiced in God, we thanked him, we may have even had time for a little prayer, I don't know, Sunday mornings are busy aren't they? But as we came out of our homes and came together there's a sense that we're bringing God with us. We're bringing him with us. It's not that we're coming to this place in order to find him, like he's waiting for us here. No, we bring him with us when we come. In our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our souls, we're bringing the presence of Jesus and God with us. And then when we go home later on, we take him back to our homes. I think that is a wonderful, wonderful thought. This link between individual worship and when we worship together. But you know, that's words from the word of God and they're, they're wonderful words, but aren't examples very, very helpful to us? And we've got an example here in Matthew chapter 2 of what worship looks like. And we find it uh, in the wise men. We see what worship looks like. Particularly we find it in verse 11, Matthew 2, 11. Um, and I'm reading from the NIV now. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They bowed down and worshipped him. So what is worship? First of all, we worship when we treat Jesus as king. We worship when we treat Jesus as king. From the moment that these wise men arrived in Jerusalem, it was really clear that they believed that the newborn child was king. They came seeking the king, didn't they? They were asking around in Jerusalem, where is he? Where is he? This, uh, this one who's been born, king of the Jews, where is he? You can imagine them going in the streets of Jerusalem just asking everybody and people just looking at them quite bemused. What on earth are you talking about? No king uh, has been, been born here for quite a while and well, it's Herod, you know, he's the one um, in, in, in the palace there. And everyone getting a bit edgy at the mention of a new king. But it was quite clear that they intended to worship this king. So there's something more. It's not just that, that this child is king. He is deserving of worship. So he is God and king. We sometimes mistakenly call these uh, wise men kings, don't we? They might have been kings. They may have been. I mean, Psalm 72 talks about kings will come and bow down to him. Uh, so there's a prophecy there in Psalm 72 that kings will certainly worship 
the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's no evidence that these wise men were actually kings. Herod certainly believed himself to be the king of the Jews. This is why he was so furious, wasn't he? When the news got to him in the palace that people were inquiring about a new king, he was furious. I'm the king. There's nobody else who's king. But actually, in this account, in Matthew 2, there is only one true king, and that is the child himself, who is the king of the Jews. And not only of the Jews, he is king of all creation. Remember, these wise men were not Jews, and they came to worship him. Jesus is their king too. Matthew is really careful all through his gospel to keep on telling us that the Lord Jesus Christ is king. From the very first verse, Matthew chapter 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of David. David was the greatest king that Israel and Judah ever had. And what Matthew says is the Lord Jesus Christ is descended from him. And then when you read through Matthew chapter 1, you find that he mentions 14 different kings of Judah by name, all in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is descended from kings, humanly speaking, and he is the king of kings. And throughout the gospel, Matthew is going to tell us that Jesus is king. He's going to show us that Jesus is king. But the first people ever to treat Jesus as king were these wise men. They were the first people to ever come and fall down before him and to treat him as king. And their worship of him sprang from their understanding that he is king. And if you and I are going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, whether on our own and especially together, when we come together as God's people, we need to begin by accepting that he is king and by treating him as king of our lives, that he is the one who rules over us. He is the one who is the object of all our honour and our praise, that we are his servants day by day, not, not just giving him a few minutes occasionally on a Sunday and then living the rest of the week by ourselves and for ourselves, but living with him as king always. The word of God says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. We need to acknowledge that Jesus is king. So the first question is, who's king of your life? Someone's going to be king. Someone's going to direct your path. Someone's going to be leading you. Who is it that you live for? Who is it that you're serving? Because we all serve someone, whether it's ourselves or our family members or political leaders or people we admire. We're all serving someone. Well, for the believer, we are worshipping and serving the Lord Jesus Christ as King. We worship when we treat Jesus Christ as King, just as these wise men did. Secondly, we worship when we seek Jesus Christ first in our lives. When we seek Jesus Christ first in our lives. The wise men here are an example to us of single-minded pursuit of Christ. Just think about it for a minute. How much would it actually have cost them to make that 
journey. We don't know where they came from. We only know that they came from the east, somewhere from the east. It must have cost them an enormous amount of money. After all, I mean, those gifts aren't cheap, are they? Uh, uh, gold is, has always been incredibly expensive. Frankincense was a very expensive uh, incense, and, and so was myrrh. And they, they actually bought that before they came. And it wasn't just a little, it wasn't just a tiny little bit of gold. Um, it was a, quite an amount because, after all, Joseph and Mary would have needed that in order to fund their their flight to Egypt and living there. No doubt Joseph would have got work as a carpenter when he got to Egypt, but he needed that money to look after his little family and the journey there and so on. So all of this was most useful to them. But that must have cost the wise men a lot. What dangers would they have faced? I mean, traveling in those days and in that part of the world was not going to be easy. It would have involved many dangers. But none of that put these men off. They were determined to find Christ and to worship him. Because finding the Lord Jesus Christ, finding this king and worshipping him was first in their lives. It was their single-minded pursuit to do that. Something must always come first in your life and in my life. People live for all sorts of things, don't they? Some people live for science, trying to develop something new discovering something new and useful for humanity. Some people live for technology. We've got people in the church, who are, our church, who are very good at technology. And they live for things like graphics and computer science and developing the latest game or program or developing their, their own latest thing over, that they can put on the internet. Technology. The environment. Uh, there are those who commit their lives now to battling Climate change, it's a great concern for people, isn't it? Saving the planet, looking after what God has given us. Environment may be what people are living for. Maybe it's not that, maybe it's arts. People are keen on music, perhaps, or fine arts, dance, dance, or or drama. We will end up becoming single-minded in our pursuit of whatever it is that captures our mind and our heart most. But the question is, will it satisfy us ultimately? What happens when you get to the end or you get to the top of whatever your chosen career is or your chosen pursuit in life? Will you find that deep down satisfaction? What happens when you get to a stage in life where you can't do the things that you used to do, where you can no longer pursue your interests, your hobbies, your passions anymore? Let me tell you this. If you pursue Christ as first in everything, then everything else will take its proper place in your life. And you will still find enormous enjoyment and pleasure and a greater satisfaction in pursuing whatever it is that is your particular passion and love. Whether it's science or technology, environment, the arts, whatever it might be. You'll find that all of these things will come under the lordship of Christ because Jesus is king of all. And every one of those areas is something that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of. And so if you pursue him, you will discover that everything else is greatly enhanced. And what's more, you will find the greatest satisfaction always because there will never be a time when you cease to pursue Christ 
even right up to our very, very old age when we cannot come out to church anymore and when we can't do very much at all and we can't even read very much and we can't move very well, we can still say, Lord Jesus, I love you. I know you are mine. And that is the most wonderful thing about worship. Christ comes first. Take a lesson from these wise men. It does cost to worship Christ, of course. It costs them and it will cost you as well. There'll be things that you won't be able to do because you're following Christ and worshipping him. There will be a cost involved. Jesus warned us of that. But what a wonderful cost to, to, to make in order to love him. We'll have to deny ourselves things in order to worship Christ. We'll have to make sure that we're making the most of all of those means of grace that we were talking about with the children, young people this morning. The Bible, prayer, the church, baptism, communion, the preaching of the word of God, the fellowship of God's people, many other things that God has given to us to help us to worship him. But worship means putting Christ first in everything. And then thirdly, finally this morning, these wise men teach us not only that we worship when we treat Jesus as king, not only that we worship when we put him first in everything, but finally we worship when we respond to Jesus Christ in faith. We, we worship in faith. Faith is central to our worship. We see these uh, wise men in several scenes, don't we? You could almost paint these scenes, and I'm sure they are there on Christmas cards, and I'm sure some of the great artists of the world have painted all these different scenes. You, you move with these wise men, don't you, from scene to scene. First scene, wise men in Jerusalem inquiring after the newborn king. Verses 1 and 2, uh, they come to Jerusalem and ask, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. First scene. And then there's an, a second scene, isn't there? In Herod's palace, meeting privately with the king Herod in order to know where the newborn king would be born. Verses 7 and 8. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. There's a lovely scene there with them and Herod. And we know that Herod is being deceitful with them when he says that. And then there's another scene on the road to Bethlehem, rejoicing that they can see the star again and know that they're traveling in the right direction. But of all the scenes with the wise men, the most revealing, the most wonderful, is when we see them arriving at the house and bowing down, kneeling before the child. And remember, this child is very, very young. He's less than two years old. And he's there with his mother. But you notice that they saw the child. The child comes first, not Mary. We always say Mary and the child. But the Bible always says the child and Mary. The child always comes first. And then these men kneel down and worship a child. Now that is an act of incredible faith. They believed in him before they ever saw him. They were convinced by that star. They may have been convinced by other things that they had in their own country. Some of the writings of Daniel perhaps. 
maybe the prophecies of Balaam because he came from the east there as well. But they, they had something to help them, but they'd never seen him, and yet they, they believed in him. They believed in him when the religious people didn't believe in him. The Jewish leaders didn't believe in Christ, and they believed in him when he was just a little child. Listen to what one great commentator, J.C. Ryle, they saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak and needing a mother's care, like any one of ourselves. And yet when they saw that infant, they believed that they saw the divine saviour of the world. That was faith. And no greater faith, surely, perhaps in the entire Bible, than these wise men who are looking at a little child. That's all they're seeing. And yet they believe that he is the saviour of the world. Now we have so much more, don't we? We know so much more. We know about the life, the t teachings, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. We have so much to convince us that he is the Son of God and worthy of all of our worship. But it still requires faith, not sight. Though we have not seen him, we love him. We love him. So let's follow the example of the wise men and worship the Lord Jesus by treating him as king of our lives, by putting him first in everything and by coming to him in faith daily and together.